Let's begin with a word of prayer. My fair prayer, Father, this morning is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. So I remember when I was a little boy, I asked my mother what getting old was like. Children asked those odd questions. And uh, she looked at me and she said, you know what old is getting like? She says, when you become afraid of falling. Think about it. Little children run and they fall and they pop right up. And I don't know about you, but now I'm getting ready to fall. And I'm like, that ground seems very far away. And bones break and ligaments get torn. And I'm like, how did it happen? All of a sudden, I became old. Well, today we're going to talk about a fall. But I want to tell you about the Guinness record for the world's longest fall. I wrote down her name. Her name was Vesna Vulovic. And she was a flight attendant on a DC-9. And the plane crashed. And she fell 333,330 feet. That's the equivalent of 26 Empire State Buildings. It's about 55 miles. And she hit the side of a mountain and slid down. And she broke her skull. Three vertebrae, two legs. She was in a coma for 27 days, and she had a full recovery. She has the Guinness World Record for the world's longest fall. Now, I don't think, you know, you see those people on TV, that how many hot dogs or crickets could I eat to break the record? I don't think anybody wants to break Vesna's record for the longest fall. And yet, today we're going to talk about Eve and Adam. And their fall is still happening. Their fall is happening now and goes on until the end of time when Jesus comes back. I want you to think about that. We call it, theologians call chapter 3 of Genesis, air quotes, capital letters, the fall. Before Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of good and evil, they did not know sin. That's an experience that nobody in this room, nobody in this world has ever experienced. We're born with what theologians call original sin. And people go, but babies are so cute. Yes, they are little, cute, manipulative buzzards. <laughs> right? Have you ever done something because a baby wouldn't stop yelling? Well, they're manipulating you. Right? I have a friend, and she says, my baby gets up at 3 o'clock, and she's so cute, I'm playing with her. I said, you're being manipulated. Because when you get up in the morning, the baby gets to sleep and you don't. Don't play with your child at 3 a.m. They're manipulating you. I want what I want and I want it. Oh, there you go. You've met these children. Why? Because we are these children. Before Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had no knowledge of original sin. Their life was a clean slate, what psychologists call a tabula rasa. There was nothing written on the slate other than their relationship with God and this wonderful garden. And God said, there's only one rule you have to follow. See that tree, don't eat from that tree. And it wasn't until the serpent really sort of pushed Eve in the direction of the tree that she even really thought about eating it. She was happy living her life in the garden with Adam, 
taking care. We talked about last week, their job was to be fruitful and multiply, take care of the garden. We don't know how long they were there. And into this picture comes temptation. Now, good news. This is not a sermon on temptation. Why? Because I, I, I love this old phrase that says, lead me not into temptation, I could find it on my own. There you go. Right? We don't need a sermon on temptation. You don't need any more ideas on how to sin. We've all become quite adept at sinning. It's not a sermon on blame. Because if you were listening, Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent, and then Adam tried to blame God. He said, the woman you gave me, it's your fault, God. If you hadn't given me the woman, he says, he says, if the serpent hadn't talked to me, the serpent says, well, if the devil hadn't, you know... The devil made me do it. Flip Wilson is back. Everybody wanted to blame somebody else they were hiding. We're not going to talk about that. We're all adept at ignoring sin. Where we're headed today is, today is the second promise of Advent. It's the promise of salvation. If you're listening to the curse that God laid on the serpent and on the woman, on the man, at the beginning of recorded history, God puts a promise that we will be saved. And he says that the child of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That one day we will be able to go back to that place where sin does not have a hold on our life. Now the theologians, and I'm sorry I'm going to say theologians a lot, they call what we have a propensity. We have a, a leaning towards sin. When I talk to teenagers, they're not really comfortable with the word sin and just insert the word selfishness. I want what I want and I want it now. We are, it's in our DNA to be selfish people. So somebody says, well, I'm not selfish. See those two cupcakes? I'm going to let the big one go to somebody else and I'll take the little one. Well, why did you do that? Well, you know, I'm on a diet. Well, then you're doing what you think is best for you. Or you want to feel better, holier than now, because you didn't take the bigger cupcake. There's, there's always a reason for what we do. And at the core of our being is selfishness. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3.23 that we have all sinned. We're, we've all been selfish and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, he says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And I want you to think about this. Sin leaves a scar. Sin leaves a scar. So, you ever seen a bumper sticker that says stupidity should hurt? Oh, I have. I love it. Why? Because it's not really true, but I wish it was. About... Nine years ago, I was riding my motorcycle to church, and a man tied a big, heavy table to the top of his minivan, which he was taking to his church, and he didn't have any rope, so he used hazardous waste bags. <laughs> and we were driving down the Schuylkill Expressway at 60 miles an hour, and I came up behind him, and the table started going like this, and I said to myself, self, I said, this is not going to end well. I immediately hit the brakes and changed lanes, and that table came flying off and took me out on my motorcycle. That's why my shoulders don't work. I can only lift about this high. They don't go much higher than that. 
I was out of work for almost 18 months, rebuilding my shoulders. Stupidity should hurt. It leaves a scar. Well, guess what? Sin leaves a scar. So every morning when I put my collar up to put my tie on, I'm reminded of that day because it actually hurts for me to put a tie on every morning, every day from now until the day I retire and I stop wearing a tie. I'm going to be reminded physically of that day. Ouch. <laughs> I'm done. Right? Sin leaves a scar physically, emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially. All, I got them all. Yes. It leaves a scar. And that scar needs to be healed. And God says the only way to heal that scar is by the shedding of blood. I want you to think about this. That the only way to heal that scar is by the shedding of blood. So in the olden days, they would take an animal to the altar and the animal would die in proxy for whatever sin there was. The animal would be sacrificed. The shedding of blood would wash away that sin. Now I want you to hear this. That was singular. That sin. One sin. One animal, one sin. And we're told that at the temple of God, the sacrifices went on almost 24-7 because every time you had a new sin, you had to get a new animal. Think about this. So now there were rules about the size of your sin and the size of the animal and what sacrifice you had to bring. And if you couldn't afford it, God had smaller animals that you could do in proxy all the way down to the doves, but a price had to be paid for every sin. And the people got used to the idea that I can sin and I can pay the price and then my sin goes away, which made them, I want you to hear this, it made them numb to the penalty of sin. If I can sin and pay the price and my sin goes away, what burden does sin have? What scar does it really leave? And yet you know in your personal life that somebody along the way has said a mean word or done you dirty at work or even you were driving to church today and somebody cut you off. You remember all of those moments. They leave a dent in your psyche. And God, who loves each and every one of us, has a dent in his psyche from every one of our sins. One of the books I read said that there have been, since the beginning of time, almost 30 billion, billion people. Now the good news is, God has a place for every one of those 30 billion people if they put on the life preserver and accept the gift of salvation. But also, if every one of those 30 billion people committed one sin... God has 30 billion scars, two sins, 60 billion, 10 sins. If we all only committed 10 sins in our entire life, God would have 300 billion scars. Imagine how much just one of those moments hurts you. It's an unmanageable pain, unimaginable pain that God carries for us. Now, two results happen from sin. One is guilt and one is shame. In my Sunday school class at my last church, we had a lot of fun looking at this because 
You know, they say your mom guilts you into doing things. Your mom doesn't actually guilt you into doing things. She shames you into doing things. Guilt, by definition, is the actual fact that you did something wrong, right? You're driving down the highway, it's 55, 65 is what you're doing, the little lights go. The guilt is you got caught doing something wrong. Now, the first time I ever got a ticket in my life was uh, right over on Route 38. I had my mother's 17 and a half foot station wagon and there was a bump in the road and I wasn't speeding, but we went over the bump and the car was so long it scraped. And the policeman pulled me over. It was about 11 o'clock at night, lights flashing, and I had an African-American gentleman with me. We were coming home from work. Alvin and Calvin were in the car together and two teenagers, one of color, one not, at 11 at night, well, we got to search their car. And I said, oh, you're going to find her hymnals, because I was a, a church music director back then. And yes, the policeman went digging in the back of the car, and there were hymnals. And, and Calvin and I are sitting on the side of the road, and who comes by in their car but the entire high school band? All of my friends from high school came driving by, and like, they were shocked. And, and they're searching my car, and we're, they didn't put handcuffs on, but we're on the side of the road, and we didn't do anything wrong. So what we felt there, I want you to hear this, was shame. Because for the next two weeks, I had to explain to everybody that I knew why I was on the side of the road having the police search my car. Now, they wrote me a ticket for careless driving, which I wasn't doing. And I was, I was ready to go fight, and my mother and father said, no, we're not fighting it, we're just paying the ticket and getting out of here as quick as we can. And I had to go in front of the judge and lie and say, guilty. It was, I didn't like it. And what we're talking about in the scripture today was not the guilt. Adam and Eve knew they did something wrong. It was not the guilt that caused them to sow the fig leaves. It was not the guilt that caused them to hide. The fact of sin had already taken place. It was the scar. It was the hurt from that. I want you to hear that. We run from God because we know what that hurt is like and we don't like it. Therefore, we don't want to share it with anybody. We run away because of the shame. So when your mom calls you up and wants you to do something you don't want to do, she's not guilting you into it. She's shaming you into it. Shame is the feeling of embarrassment at being caught or the false bravado of, I can do this anyway. So here's God's plan. God says, if you sin, a price must be paid. The price for that is a sacrifice. And if you sin and you offer a sacrifice, then salvation is yours. And in the Old Testament, it was... It was like the back of the shampoo bottle. Have you ever read your shampoo bottle? Did you know you're all supposed to wash your hair twice according to the directions? You know, wash, rinse, and repeat. Well, think about that. That's how sin was taken care of in the Old Testament. Sin, sacrifice, saved. Sin, and it was this revolving door until God, and this is next Sunday's sermon, God sent us one sacrifice to pay the price for everyone. This week is salvation. Next week is a savior. I want to finish with two quick stories here. The first one is 
not a true story. It's, it's one of those examples preachers use, an anecdote. But a, a Bible study decided to go down to the lake, and they all were having a Bible study on the dock by this beautiful lake, and one of the members of the Bible study fell in the lake. And he couldn't swim. And he was thrashing about and he was calling for help, calling for help. And one of the people in the Bible study was an experienced lifeguard. And he watched this guy flail around and flail around. And everybody was like, jump in, save him, save him, save him. And finally, when the guy in the water was running out of energy and could no longer fight, the experienced swimmer went in and pulled him out. Well, everybody was glad that he had pulled him out, but they were very upset Why did you do that, they said. And he said, well, if I had jumped in right away, he was so angry and so anxious and so full of adrenaline, (coughs) we would have both drowned. I had to wait for him to realize that he couldn't do it himself. And then I could help. So I'm getting ready for this sermon, and the name Jim Fix came up for me. Jim Fix, in 1977, published a book called The Complete Book of Running. And he, in his 30s, had decided to take up running as a hobby. He was over 200 pounds, and by the time he wrote the book, he had lost 60 pounds, and he was running marathons. And the book became a huge success. And in 1984, seven years after the book was published, Jim Fix died. He died of a heart attack while he was running. And everybody was shocked. Why would this thin, athletic man who had really brought the whole idea of cardio and running into the public eye die of a heart attack? Well, it seems as though he had a family history of heart attacks. His father had died very young of a heart attack. And you've heard this, you've seen it on t-shirts, athletes wear shirts that say, no pain, no gain. And that he had been ignoring the symptoms of the heart attack for an untold amount of time to the point where the December before his, he died, the doctor had asked him to go and take a stress test. He said, no, I don't want to take a stress test. I, I'm the world's expert on running. Look at my body. He could even perhaps say, you know, it's a temple. It can run marathons. I don't need the stress test. He refused the stress test, ignored the symptoms, and he died. Then they did some study, and they found out that he was addicted to running. I don't know if you've heard of the runner's high, but if your body gets used to doing something over time, it actually begins to produce something called endorphins. And they lessen the pain of your legs and your lungs or whatever, and you could actually run or bicycle further than you could when you started. And you can get addicted to that rush of endorphins. And I'm sitting there thinking about my life and our lives as Christians, and I realize that we are addicted to sin. That like Adam and Eve, we're addicted to sin. We have a propensity to do things that are selfish for us, We want to take care of what we want. We forget what other people want. We forget what God wants. And like Jim Fix, we're ignoring the signs. We're ignoring the pain. We're ignoring the symptoms. Even ignoring sometimes the word of God that's very clear. The Bible says, for all have sinned. We look around and we say, 
well, I'm better than that person, or I'm better than that person, or I'm not shooting up a school, or I'm not robbing a bank, or I'm not robbing my neighbor. I'm okay. And the Bible says we're not, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does this mean for us? This means three things. The first thing, everybody in the room, saved or unsaved, needs to be reminded needs to recognize our fallen state. We cannot reach God on our own. God reaches out to us. We need to realize that you can't fix it on your own. Like the man splashing in the water, calling out for help. It wasn't until he realized he couldn't do it on his own that the other man was willing and able to save him. We need to realize We can't fix it on our own. There is nothing you can do. And then, here's the good news. The whole purpose of this sermon, the whole purpose of this church being here is that we need to receive God's gift of salvation and restore that relationship. Heal those scars, those 30 billion, those 300 billion, those untold scars that we, each and every one of us, have dented in our relationship with God. Now, if you feel challenged by today's sermon, if you need to pray with someone or talk with someone, during our last hymn, you're invited to come up to the front pews. Pastor Wiki, myself, the deacons would love the opportunity to pray with you. Amen.